Uh, we've been on a, a wee bit of a journey over the past couple of weeks, diving a little deeper and looking a little closer at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, from being his father's favourite to, be, to having himself thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers. Now, of course, he didn't really help himself as he shared with them dreams that he had had, which had insinuated uh, that they would bow down to him. But he found himself in a pit nonetheless. You want to tick your brothers off, let them know that you think you're better than them, right? And that's what that dream did. But from from the pit then, he was sold into slavery, his brothers taking his coat home to his father Jacob as though he had been ravished by wild animals. Then in slavery, he found himself rise to prominence in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the Egyptian guard. Before all that fell apart, following some false accusations and allegations of sexual misconduct. These false allegations then find him thrown into prison, where once again he rises to prominence and ends up running things on behalf of the warden. Now, whilst in that prison, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of Pharaoh are thrown into prison alongside him, they both have a couple of dreams of their own, which Joseph then uh, interprets with the help of God. The cupbearer's dream, as we looked at last week, is much more favorable than the baker's dream. Uh, And so Joseph asks that when the cupbearer is restored to his position by Pharaoh's side, that he remembers Joseph before Pharaoh. But of course, the cupbearer forgets. That is until two years later, whenever Pharaoh has a couple of dreams of his own, and his own magicians and his own wise men cannot interpret them. So Joseph is then brought to Pharaoh and tells him that his dreams speak of seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine, which would be severe. And he gives him some advice about how he should deal with the situation which God has made known to him. Don't you wish the last two weeks had been that quick, right? But that's the story up until this point. So, so enamored, Pharaoh gives Joseph the job of being his number two, who oversees the whole operation, gives him a new name, which means God lives and God speaks, as well as giving him a wife by whom he would have two children, Manasseh, which mean, whose name means forgetfulness, because the Lord has helped me forget all of my trouble. And Ephraim, which means fruitfulness, because the Lord has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Names, as we said, we spoke of the faithfulness of God toward Joseph, despite all that he had initially gone through. And today, we draw this section of our dive into this story that changes everything to a close. We're going to be covering a lot of ground in a short space of time and therefore I really want to encourage you that over the next week you go home and you read Genesis chapter 42 through to Genesis chapter 50, okay? You'll be glad to know that I'm not going to read all eight chapters. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to try and cover everything that's in all of those chapters as well. But we are going to be covering a lot of ground. So if we want to know the details of the story, we need to go away and we need to read it for ourselves. So Genesis 42 to 50. But this week we pick up where we left off last week. Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and nothing happens without his say-so. 
The famine has come and many are coming to him to purchase food because they themselves have produced nothing to eat. The famine has come just as prophesied. Not only in Egypt, but also in the surrounding countries and territories which surrounded Egypt. So that's where we're jumping back in. Chloe will tell you that this is true, that if there's one thing that I enjoy, it's a good character arc, right? A good character arc. Those, those little boring episodes of TV shows or parts of movies that you think are fillers, but actually a character is being developed. And we begin to learn a little more of why they are the way that they are. Anybody else enjoy those kind of episodes or those kind of parts, that, that sort of character development? I have a lot of faces going, no, not really. Maybe I'm really boring, but I, I, I love it. I love it. Mervyn certainly thinks so, right? And in the Marvel Universe or in DC or in superhero uh, movies, they call these their origin stories. Their origin stories which help us to understand the events which have led to an individual or a group of people being the way that they are, helping us to understand why they act in a particular way. Chloe will also tell you how I love a good redemption arc in particular, a redemption story, those moments where a character defies their origin story to, well, clues in the name, to redeem themselves, either through a courageous act, a selfish uh, selfless moment, rather, or something which is simply out of the ordinary, which nobody seen coming. But those moments, those moments where everything cleverly comes around full circle, where we're propelled back to the beginning, those moments when done right and not forced are just they have you fist pumping whenever you're watching or maybe I'm just a little too animated whenever I watch stuff or read books. So you can imagine my reaction this week as we read through the story of Genesis whenever we're propelled back to 17-year-old Joseph, how he was his father's favorite and the dreams that he had and shared with his brothers. Only this time, whenever they're brought back to our memory, Joseph is not 17 years old. Jo Joseph is actually 39. And he finds himself aged 39 as the ruler of Egypt, a beacon of hope in a time of famine. This time we don't have sheaves bowing down or the sun the moon and 11 stars bowing down. But as we read in Genesis 42, 6 to 9, now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces on the ground. Remember the dream? Just as they said it would be. As soon as Joseph's brother, uh, Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Why did, where do you come from? He asked. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Because remember, the Lord had helped him to forget. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is on." protected. Now, Joseph knew, oh, 
Joseph knew that they were not spies, okay? He knew exactly who was before him. As he enters into dialogue with them, they revealed that they were all brothers having the same father and that both he and their younger brother were at home in Canaan. They also shared that there was another brother who they said was no more. In other words, they told Joseph that their brother Joseph was dead, something which everybody present knew to be a lie. You see, they didn't know who Joseph was, but Joseph knew who they were. Joseph knew that they had sold this younger brother into slavery in Egypt. How did he know? Because he was that brother. Yet they had told the lie to their father. And very often, whenever we tell ourselves something that's not true, often enough, it becomes part of our vocabulary. It becomes part of our story and becomes part of who we are. So it was just easier for them and probably a force of habit and probably something they had maybe perhaps begun to believe themselves that their younger brother was dead. Only the brothers did not know that Joseph knew that it was a lie, obviously. So as, as we read on, and as you read on this week, you'll see how they're thrown into prison, how they then begin to turn against one another, particularly when Reuben brings up that he had told them not to sin against the boy all those years before. But Joseph, in his kindness, releases them and sends them home. And he sends them home not only with grain, because we're in a time of famine, Grain is what they came for. Sends them not home not only with grain, but also with the money that they had used to purchase the grain. Wouldn't that be great if you went to the supermarket and you went up to the till and you paid for it and they says, actually, do you know what? Give me your, ca- give me your card back. We'll just, we'll just put that on through and we'll reimburse it all to you and you go on your merry way. Wouldn't that be class? Wouldn't it be class? But this is essentially what happens. And when they returned and back to their father and the grain ran out, they returned, this time with Benjamin, their youngest brother, with them. Okay? For Joseph, again, not revealing who he was, told them that if they ever showed their face again without their younger brother, that there would be consequences. So, coming back, they bring young Benjamin with them. Okay? So there's loads and loads here, loads to get our head around and a long story to follow. But what does this wee family reunion that the brothers didn't realize was a family reunion, and what does the dreams have, uh, dreams coming round full circle have to do with you and I sitting here this morning in East Belfast, thousands of years later and thousands of miles away from where the event took place? Firstly, Sometimes the words that we receive from the Lord, anybody ever received a promise or a wee word from the Lord before? Sometimes the words which we receive from the Lord do not happen right away or happen according to our timetable. Joseph's dreams may have got him thrown into a pit and made him unpopular with some of those who were closest to him, but he would be vindicated And the word of the Lord to him would be proven to be true. It wasn't proven true when he was in the pit. It wasn't proven true whenever he was in the prison. But 22 years later, they were proven true at just the right time. 
And perhaps God is saying to us this morning to just hold on a little longer. Just hold on a little longer. For help and fulfillment are on the way. And the call to us this morning is to trust him to uphold his end of the bargain. Because as we have been reminded so often in recent times, he's never failed and he's not going to start with us. So that's maybe the first thing that we can learn from this wee family reunion. The second thing is this, that it wasn't that Joseph didn't want to embrace his brothers, throw his arms around them and reveal to them who he was. It's just that it wasn't the right time for him to do that just yet. To have done so then would have jumped the gun and circumvented the purpose for which God had ordained this reunion to take place in the first place. And sometimes the ways in which God calls us to walk seem to go against our natural instincts. And truth be told, sometimes defy our human nature. But it is important for us to remember that he is God and we are not. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is, the, he is all-knowing and we are not. He will never take us where his grace cannot sustain us. And it's important for us, as before we dive any deeper into the story and try and bring it to a close, that we're reminded of those truths. We jump forward a few chapters now, and we find ourselves in Genesis 45. The first 11 verses of this were read to us by Graham a little bit earlier on. But Joseph's brothers have returned to Egypt for more grain after their supplies had run out. Remember, it's a seven-year famine. What they came and got was not enough to see them through the whole time, and their supplies have run out. And they've been sent back by their father Jacob to go and get some, and they've remembered that if they go without Benjamin, they're in trouble. So this time, young Benjamin returns with them. And as they are sent on their way, once again, Joseph instructs that their money be returned with as much grain as their sacks can carry. They went to Asda and got their shopping for free once. They've gone back and Asda have done it again. That's pretty good, right? Other shops are available, of course. However, this time, instead of just returning the money and giving the grain, this time into young Benjamin's sack, Joseph orders his men to place his silver cup, which is worth much both in terms of cost, but also in Egyptian ceremony as well. Now, unsurprisingly, this causes a whole kerfuffle. You know what a kerfuffle is? Don't you? I couldn't find any other word. But it causes a whole thing, a whole kerfuffle, including the brothers sharing their father's distress at the loss of their brother Joseph all those years ago. And after a wee bit of the back and forth with the brothers, we are told that Joseph cannot contain himself any longer. And upon sending his attendants from his presence, he reveals himself to his brothers. And as Graham read for us earlier, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, 
the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. That's a lot more gracious than I probably would have been. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. There is no other words that could be used to describe what we see here other than this. What we see here is radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Joseph, who had up until this point concealed his identity, hidden his identity from his brothers in order that God might work through him, finally finally reveals himself to his brothers as the one that they had thrown into the pit all those years ago. As he does so, he doesn't tell them that all is forgotten or that what they did was okay, but rather, I like to think that Joseph was an East Belfast man in this moment because he calls a spade a spade, right? He calls a spade a spade and he calls out their sin for what it was. He tells them how they had wronged him. Yet, in the calling out of their sin, he laces it with compassion and compels his brothers not to beat themselves up for it. Now remember, his firstborn Manasseh lived as proof that God had helped Joseph to forget all of his trouble and to move past his trouble. And just as it was with Joseph, so too Joseph longed for it to be the case for his brothers. That they would not stay in their guilt, that they would not carry their shame anymore, but that it would be forgotten. Now we've heard the phrase forgive and forget, right, haven't we? And it's the forget the forgiving part, surprisingly, is the easy part. Whenever the Bible talks here about forgetting, whenever Manasseh's name of forgetfulness comes about, it's not saying that it's completely wiped from your memory. It's not saying that it doesn't, it, it doesn't come across your mind every now and again. What it's saying is this. It's saying that you don't live there anymore. It's saying that you don't live there anymore. You don't carry that distress. You don't carry that shame. Who here has been wronged? Quick show of hands right? Just to make sure you're still awake, you know, right? I would say each one of us in this room at one point or another have been wronged. And each one of us could probably tell another person how we've been wronged. We haven't forgotten it, but for most of us, we don't live there anymore, okay? And I want to say if we still live there, and I know this is going a little bit back on what we said last week and recapping it as well, God doesn't call us to live there anymore. God calls us to move past it. It doesn't mean that we forget completely or that it's wiped from our memory, but rather that we, do you know what? I know it happened, but it doesn't matter anymore, right? And this was Joseph's 
prayer for his brothers. This was his desire for them, that just as he had got to the point where he had said, you know what, it happened, there's no denying that, but it doesn't matter anymore and I'm not going to live there anymore. He wished that this would happen for his brothers as well, that they wouldn't carry the guilt, that they wouldn't carry the shame anymore. This shame that came to the forefront as they were in prison the first time and uh, Reuben turns on his brothers and he basically says, this is all your fault because I told you we mustn't sin against the boy right? Whenever we're backed into a corner, sometimes the ugly comes out, doesn't it? I told you so. I hate it when people say, I told you so, right? I told you this would happen, and it's not helpful. It's not helpful, and God doesn't call us to live in that shame or in that distress anymore, and just as Joseph had been freed from it, he longed that his brothers too would experience that, And Joseph, rather than choosing to see, uh, Joseph rather chose to see how God had turned it around for his good and brought a plan and a purpose, how he had brought fruitfulness out of his suffering. Now, many here will know the story of the Enniskillen Remembrance Day bombing uh, and of the story of Marie and Gordon Wilson. Marie was a young nurse uh, and was killed in the bombing whilst father Gordon, um, not Father Gordon, her father, Gordon, survived. Wilson was, uh, Gordon Wilson was asked in an interview with the BBC about how he felt towards those who had, um, those who had committed this heinous act. And uh, the whole nation was blown away at the time by his response. He says, but I bear no, will, no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet. But she's dead. She's in heaven, and we shall meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Now, how can a man who lost his daughter, Gordon Wilson, and a man sold into slavery by his own family, Joseph, react in the ways in which they did. How is that even possible? There's two wee words that appear throughout the scriptures time and time and time again. Six letters between them. But God. But God. See, life is full of curveballs. It's full of ups and downs. It's full of difficulties and heartaches. Nothing in this life seems certain except uncertainty itself. Life can be hard. Life can be unfair. And life can be cruel. However, when we realize, as Joseph did, that God rules our life, not good men nor evil men, not circumstances nor the things that happen, but rather our God rules and causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, then and only when we realize this are we able to walk in the forgiveness and in the freedom that Joseph and Gordon Wilson were able to walk in. Two very different stories, yet a similar response. But God... And the story doesn't stop there. You see, as we fast forward again, 
Jacob's father, uh, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, rather, is brought to Egypt, and then a wonderful reunion takes place. A wonderful reunion takes place. All the family back together again. That which seemed to have been lost, restored. Then in chapter 49, we read of how Jacob calls all of his sons to him and how he prophesies over each of them. That is, he tells them what will happen to them in the days to come. So to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, Zebulun, Azakar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Naphtali, and Joseph, and Benjamin, he speaks. But amongst all of those, he also speaks words to his son, Judah. And we read about it in Genesis 49, 8 to 12. He says to Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to ruse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Why, why are we closing the story of Joseph by talking about one of his brothers? Why are we closing our look at the story of Joseph with a prophecy about his brother Judah? Well, that, that's a good question. It's a fair question. But you see, thousands of years later, from Judah's line would come one who would draw his people back to God. You may remember that as Joseph spoke to his brothers in chapter 45, as he revealed to them who he was, that he had said that he was sparing them that a remnant may come from them. This prophecy over Judah by Jacob is actually a description of Judah's greatest descendant. From the tribe of Judah would come Jesus Christ. And the word scepter means rod or staff, and it indicates authority. It is used throughout the Scriptures to reference God's absolute power and His absolute rule over His creation. Jesus, from the tribe of Judah in Israel, would possess the scepter of God and be given authority over all nations, ruling with truth and with grace in fulfillment of this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. See, the Lord, who is our shepherd, comforting us with his rod and his staff, brings comfort to his people and strikes fear into his enemies. See, despite the craziness of the world around us, we can rest secure in the reality that this scepter who was prophesied did indeed come. And that he will come again. 
to rule in righteousness and the glorious day of the new dawn forever. Not only for Israel, but for all of those who would trust in him. You see, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout this book, God is weaving a story that would come and meet its climax as Jesus would come, as Jesus would come and declare the kingdom of God. The first words recorded of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, repent for the kingdom of God is near. This promise of relationship for all who would trust in him. And just as God would use Joseph, just as God would use Joseph's family, God too, from from Judah's line, would come, the saviour of the world, redemption for mankind. This is significant today. It's significant for you and it's significant for me. The first week that we looked at the story of Joseph, I remember walking away and it wasn't in my notes and I needed to go and write it down so as to remind myself again. The story of Joseph and the fulfillment of the prophecy over Judah by Jacob prove the same thing. That God is always about making a message out of our mess. That God is always in the business of taking that which seems lost and restoring it to himself. So I don't know how you're feeling today. I don't pretend to understand what goes on in my own head, never mind anybody else's. But today, the Lord extends an arm. He extends a message and he says, come. He says to us that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, our God loved us too much and loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. Each one of us born into sin. Each one of us in need of a savior. But he has made a way for each one of us to come. Through his blood, which was shed, on Calvary's tree. Wondrous love, if ever there was. So as we (coughs) close this time around the word, we're going to invite the worship team to come. Uh, And the next song that we sing is not going to be our closing song, but as as this song is sung, I'm also going to invite the communion stewards to come and distribute um, the bread and the cup for us. I invite you, even as we sing, to take a moment and to partake of the bread, remembering his body, which would be laid down and was laid down for us. But I ask that we hold the cup and that we rather drink together 
as a sign of our unity in Christ and declaring his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, and indeed his ascension until he comes again with scepter in hand, ruling in truth and in righteousness. But let's stand if we are able to do so and invite the communion stewards to come and distribute as we sing.